This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. Awesome. Well, I'm going to go ahead and welcome folks into our Zoom conversation tonight. Tonight's conversation is sponsored by the Holland UCC Justice Action Team, and it is a Homelessness 101 presentation with Daniel Unikas, Outreach Program Director at Community Action House. So Daniel's going to share some things with us, and then a little later in the evening, we'll have the opportunity to ask some questions, have some Q&A, so I'm asking folks uh, to remain muted uh, for this first portion, and then later you can unmute to ask questions. You can also pose questions in the chat section. And so welcome, Daniel. We'll turn it over to you. Wonderful. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. I've left my camera off because I'm uh, hopeful that we'll be focusing on the, the presentation. Um, but I just want to say I really appreciate so many of you showing up for this. Um, and being willing to take part, I really, really would much rather to do this in person. I, I really enjoy that space um, with a group of people in the same room, all learning about a topic together, reading the body language a little bit better. And in fact, while I'm doing this, I'm going to have to at some point minimize uh, the video of all of you that I can see right now as I'm getting started. So um, I will not be able to uh, sort of see your facial cues. And if you're all saying, what is he talking about? I won't catch that. So do please utilize the chat. If you have something that I've said that you want to add to, debate, uh, ask a question about, see clarification, go ahead and throw that in the chat. I will not probably actively monitor the chat very well, um, but if uh, Brian or if there's someone who could designate themselves, that Brian's got it, wonderful. Uh, that would be very helpful. And then Brian, you can just kind of interrupt me if there is a question that I've missed. Uh, we'll certainly have time for questions at the end. I was asked to kind of shoot for an hour here, so I will uh, try to keep true to that and um, definitely leave a little bit of time at the end for questions. So with that, um, we're going to dive in. This is Homelessness 101. This is uh, the first time that I've presented this material in this format. So I'm excited to see how this goes. I hope it goes well. We are going to dive in here and just start talking right away about homelessness. How do we talk about homelessness? Um, one thing that we've noted, when we have noticed as a team, uh, the outreach team at Community Action House, when we talk with our clients, what we're hearing is that our clients see themselves as the lowest part of society. They see themselves as a group that nobody cares about, that people don't want to be associated with, that people don't want to talk to. They see themselves as um, not deserving of that necessarily, but as um, really aware of the fact that they look maybe different, maybe their um, dental care, maybe their hygiene, they smell different, maybe they don't shower as often, they dress differently, you know, wearing six layers, even when you're inside in the winter. Um, they're aware of these things and they feel that they're treated differently because of it. Um, so, so unfortunately, we feel like it's important to start off by saying that's not what we want. That's not what they should have to deal with. And a very small but concrete change that we start with when we talk about um, people experiencing homelessness is exactly that. It's the language we use. So we use what we call person-centered language. Um, so you will hear us try to say person experiencing homelessness rather than homeless person. Uh, for those of you who have ever heard of person-centered language or person-first language, this won't be new to you. It's the same reason that we say uh, a child with autism rather than the autistic kid um, or a disabled person, a person with a disability or an otherwise abled person. Um, this person-centered language is going to drive us to um, treat their humanity as separate from the circumstances they're currently experiencing. Their homelessness is a temporal thing about them that will change. Lord willing, it will change. They have not always been, and they will not always be homeless. That's an experience. The, the reason that we find that is so important is because it starts to chip away at the mentality that that is the defining characteristic of who they are. 
So a story I'll tell to illustrate this, we recently moved someone into housing. This particular individual had been homeless for the most part for about 17 years. It was the most challenging case that we'd ever worked on. Uh, Many, many people in the community had tried um, and had worked with this person, and it was only because of a significant collaborative effort that we were able to move them into safe, stable housing. However, for the first week or so, this person was just on cloud nine. They were thrilled. They were so excited to be in their own place. But after a week or two, they started to have some pretty significant struggles that lasted for six to nine months. And the root of those struggles was, this isn't who I am. I'm a homeless guy. I belong outside. I belong out at the depot. I belong out in the tents. I belong at the mission. The very thing that we fight so hard to sort of counter the narrative of had happened to him. His identity had become enmeshed with his identity as a person experiencing homelessness. And so he actually would leave his home sometimes in the cold nights to sleep outside because he couldn't, uh, he wasn't in a place mentally to be able to accept or emotionally to accept that that wasn't who he was as an individual. It was something that had for far too long been a primary experience in his life, but it wasn't who he was. Um, so all of this comes back to say, when we talk about homelessness, you will hear me. I promise you, if you interact with me, you'll hear it in the webinar tonight and you'll hear it again. If you talk to me outside of this, I will say homeless people, I slip into it every time it's easy. It's what you're used to, but we're trying to make that shift. So we'll start with that. Can I quick jump in there uh, Please do. And, and ask about the term houseless versus homeless and, and yeah, whether you've used that or if that's useful or not. Yeah, thank you. And I want to encourage questions. Please, please, please do send questions in the chat if you have them. Uh, part of what gives me energy in, in these sort of situations is actually usually the back and forth. So it's really hard just to monologue for an hour. Uh, that is a, a really great question. And I would say I'm warming up to that term. Um, it didn't hit me great at first because in some sense, uh, they have their own shelter. It's not a house. Uh, and then I started to wonder, well, do they really gain a house if they rent out a, uh, you know, a rent a room? So, so there were some, some weird semantics, but overall I have started using that occasionally and I find it to be, um, sort of a, a helpful, I'll often say our houseless neighbors. Um, again, I want this to be my neighbors, not those people out there somewhere uh, who I have no connection with. Houseless, I think, is not that I have heard offensive in any way. So I think if that's what comes more naturally to you, go for it. Great. Yeah. So when we talk about homeless, what do we mean? Um, If there's a way to do this, if people are brave enough to come off mute and answer, I'd love to hear three people give me an idea of what they think it means when somebody says, that person is homeless, colloquially. What do we mean when we say that? Give me a situation that that person might be experiencing, where they might be staying, no right or wrong answers. What does it mean to you? Someone living on the streets. Perfect. Someone living on the streets. Who else? No permanent nighttime residents. No permanent nighttime residents. Good. What else? I lied about three. I'm going to keep asking. No place to call home like their own. So they might be couch surfing. Good, good. Yes, what else? It's a lot of tent cities. A lot of tent cities, good. We'll stop there. I know it's really awkward on Zoom, but I'm going to try to push us all to, to jump in here and there. Yes, all of those responses are very helpful. Colloquially, what I hear when people say someone is homeless, when I get a call, I'm hearing they're staying in a tent, they're staying in their car, they're staying at the home rescue mission, they're staying with a friend, they're staying with family, They're staying in a shed. They're staying in somebody's basement. They're renting a room. They're tripled up. They're quadrupled up. They are staying in a hotel. They are, right, colloquially, uh, just in everyday usage, this is such an expansive idea. People really uh, assume that this covers a lot. Unfortunately, the federal government has a very different perspective. According to the federal government, homelessness is 
um, and, and I'll, I'll make a qualifier here. We're talking about um, unsheltered homelessness. Unsheltered homelessness, according to the federal government, is very restrictive. This is people who are sleeping either outside or in a vehicle. In extremely rare circumstances, some other places apply. Um, for example, a garden shed, maybe a garage, um, but places that don't count as homeless to the federal government. Doubling up, tripling up, quadrupling up. A hotel, whether it's a cheap, dingy, terrible place that you wouldn't want anyone to stay in, or whether it's a, you know, a pay by the month and it's intended for that. Doesn't count. Um, uh, sleeping in a dingy, gross basement doesn't count. Unfinished doesn't matter. Um, there are a lot of situations that the average person would say, well, they're homeless, but the government says they're not. Why does that matter? Well, it has a lot to do with access to resources. So when somebody is considered homeless, they can start to access certain resources uh, or services that are not available to them if they are not homeless. Um, I'll quickly kind of branch out and talk about the other type of homelessness. So there's sheltered and then there's unsheltered homelessness. Your sheltered homelessness is going to be a little bit more expansive, but still fairly strict. This is going to include the Holland Rescue Mission, or I should say any emergency shelter, uh, some forms of what we call transitional housing, um, a safe haven. If any of you have heard of resilience, it used to be called Center for Women in Transition. Those kinds of places are also going to count uh, in some instances. But again, this is a fairly restrictive, narrow definition of homelessness. So we're going to play the game again where I make you talk a little bit. Oops. Who is, um, to the best of your knowledge, again, just say it, even if you're not sure if they do or not, who are the agencies, and we'll stick with Holland area, who are involved directly or indirectly with homeless services? Shout them out. Community Action House. Good. Extra credit. Holland <laughs> Rescue Mission. Good. Good Samaritan Ministries. Yep. Resilience. Good. First United Mark, it's Methodist. Almost like you, it's almost like you know some of this. And and whoever uh, well, else just said First United Methodist, good. <clears throat> Anyone else think of anything else? Shelly, I know you know some of them. You can't hide out. I see you there. <laughs> I think I said one of them earlier that nobody has said yet. Resilience, Center for Women in Transition. Um, they're kind of tangentially involved. If any of you have ever heard of My House Ministries, again, a little bit more of a focus on transitional housing, but they're sort of involved. Building Men for Life and No One Lives Alone are your recovery housing. So they're sort of tangentially involved. So traditionally, when we ask this, we're looking for kind of the big players in homelessness in Holland are going to be um, Community Action House with the outreach team, Holland Rescue Mission with the Emergency Shelter, and Good Samaritan Ministries as well we call the HARA, the Homeless Assessment Re uh, Resource Agency. So the question is, if we have all these great agencies working on this, why are there still people experiencing homelessness in the area? Um, I'm getting just a little bit of feedback from Mark or Bob, if one of you could hit mute. Um, so why do we still have homelessness then? I would argue that each of these agencies is doing great work, but the problem is so complex and so involved that you actually, um, even with all of us working on it together, it's not solvable in the way that we might want it to be. So Community Action House, again, we're running the outreach team. We certainly have a lot of other efforts going on in the community, and some of them touch our homeless population, but outreach is really our primary focus when it comes to homelessness. We are working with unsheltered homelessness only. If you're staying at the Holland Rescue Mission, it is a squeeze for us to really work directly with you because you are sheltered homeless. Our funding is for unsheltered homeless. Holland Rescue Mission on the same token there, they have, you know, a great services, but it doesn't fit everyone. You know, there are some people who um, feel that they can't go there. There are some people who say, I'm not willing to go there either due to uh, my experiences or rumors that I've heard um, from other people about what it's like there, right? That's a that's a struggle too, and and it's it's important to note that I don't think anybody expects Holland Rescue Mission to be the answer for every single person in every single situation. 
But I think there's a sense in our community that they are. And so sometimes it's hard to sort of combat that narrative and say, we have a great shelter, but outreach is still needed because it doesn't work for everyone. So now let's talk about Good Samaritan a little bit. Does anyone here work at or have has worked at Good Sam or has relatives there? Am I going to step on any toes here? Um, here's what I love to say about Good Sam. Good Sam is the easiest organization to talk about because they have such a strong history in this area and because most of what they seem to struggle with is all imposed on them. They are completely bound by the guidelines they inherit from the Michigan State Housing Development Authority or MISHTA. So sometimes I joke around like I'm really going to give it to them. In all reality, they're doing phenomenal. Their hands are just tied really, really tightly. So in short, people sometimes will tell me, well, Daniel, if somebody is homeless, it must mean that they, they, don't, they don't want help because they could go to the mission. And we say, well, that's, that's not entirely accurate or fair because it doesn't work for everyone. And then they'll say, well, they could just go get a Section 8 voucher. They could go get the HCV, the Housing Choice Voucher. A lot of people call Section 8. Here is the process to get on the Section 8 voucher. You go to Good Samaritan Ministries, they put you on a wait list. During the time that you're on that wait list, they have, you have to recertify every 90 days. If you fail to recertify, you're off the wait list. They, Good Samaritan goes above and beyond and tries to connect with you to help remind you when it's time. But guess what? Connecting with somebody who's living in the woods can be exceedingly difficult. If they have a phone at all, it's very unlikely the number stayed the same from what it was three months ago. So let's say that they do remember to recertify. What's their wait time? For the last three or four years, wait times have been over a year. Okay, so now you've been outside, you've waited. You go in after 12 months living outside and they say, hey, uh, you know, your name was pulled or we think your name might be pulled soon. What's your housing situation like? And you say, well, it's the middle of winter and I was dying out there. So I went in and uh, stayed with my cousin for the last two weeks you're off the list because you're not unsheltered homeless anymore. You broke that spell and you have to maintain that to stay on the HCV wait list. But let's say they don't find that out or you were able to stick it out outside for a full year. Then you get your voucher and it's all okay. Just kidding. Next, you get pulled for the application. At this point, they're going to mail you an application. You have to find out where that mail was sent to, receive it, fill it out and send it back in within a certain time frame. If you don't, you lost your place. If you do, though, send it in, you're good and they give you a house. Nope, just kidding. Now you have to wait to see if you're approved. If you're approved for the voucher, then they give you a voucher and you get housed, if only. Nope, then you get a voucher and now you have to do a housing search. Your search is basically your responsibility. Agencies will help as we're able. I think that's one of the areas that my team has really stepped in. Good Sam has done what they can. A lot of places are doing their best, but it's confusing. How many of you have ever looked for or talked to someone looking for a rental in Holland, Michigan right now? It is rough. Unfortunately, to make it even worse, your voucher comes with a very strict monetary limit of how much your housing can cost. Your housing can only cost up until a few weeks ago. The limit was, I think, $819 for a one-bedroom apartment. Those of you who know anything about what our rental market is like probably just went, oh man, that's going to be tough. Let's make it a little bit harder. That has to include all of your utilities, water, gas, everything. Okay. So now you've got 819 or $824. You've got to find that place. And if you apply, the landlord still has to approve you individually. So even if you've gotten this far in the process, but you have evictions in your past, you have a bad credit score, you have not enough income to make them comfortable, you have a criminal background, they can deny you. And there's nothing, you. I mean, it's just fair market. There's nothing making them treated a different way. And even if they accept you, their unit then has to pass a state inspection. So that is to say, it is a little bit of a process when, when somebody says, well, why don't they just get a voucher? It's, it's not as simple as it might seem. And unfortunately, for some people, it has worked. Well, let me rephrase that. Fortunately, for some people, it has worked really smoothly. Unfortunately, 
it seems like those are the stories that form the cultural narrative about what we should expect when someone gets a voucher. The assumption is, well, I know someone who did it and they just got a place. Um, that's really great when it works that way. The, the wait list was never meant to be this long. The, sh- the apartment and housing rental was never meant to be this short. The prices were never meant to skyrocket this high. There's a lot of things that have gone wrong at once to put us in a really bad situation right now. But I think it's important um, for us to do our best to understand that this isn't quite the simple journey we'd like to make it. Why don't they just get the voucher? Um, I'm going to stop there for just a moment and ask if there's any um, questions specific to that process. And I want to be clear, this is not Good Samaritan who is doing this. This is a state top-down decision. Good Samaritan has been an advocate for an easier process, and they just are in charge of managing the wait list. The rest of that process is actually run by an organization out of Byron Center that oversees a handful of counties at once. But it's all kind of overseen by the Michigan State Housing Development Authority. So any quick questions before we move on? Sure, go ahead, Ms. Lindsay, and then Mark. Um, one of the families that I'm working with, they are looking for housing right now using the voucher. And another issue that they're running into is how many bedrooms they need to have um, for it to qualify as they have a bigger family. And so some of the places that they've qualified for are in Muskegon um, or in Grand Rapids. And the mom of, of this family has medical challenges, so she needs to have medical appointments locally. Um, mm. And so even just the complexity of they might qualify and have that, but if there's not a rental place that's available in the area, it can also cause people to have to move in order to keep their voucher. Yeah, it's an it's an odd sort of problem in that the more bedrooms you qualify for, the voucher limit goes up crazy fast. The difference between a one and a two bedroom percentage-wise is huge. So it's helpful in the sense of it's more realistic in our current market when you get to two and three bedrooms. However, the stock of those is really low. And so it can be very difficult to find something in a geographical area. That's uh, great input. Thank you. Uh, Mark, you had something? Well, you asked earlier if anybody um, had an affiliation with Good Samaritan, and I'm sitting three feet away from my tablet, so I didn't jump fast enough, but um, I was the housing director there for two different stints over the last 20 years or so. So, But but everything, I think you just wanted to make sure you didn't step on any toes, but you did. <laughs> well, I'm quaking in my boots a little bit now, especially because I know it was recorded. Mark, did it, did, did I do justice question did i do justice the The rules and regs are what the rules and regs are what they are um you know anything that comes out of the federal level is just going to have lots of rules and regs there's just no unfortunately no getting around it um i think you did a good job of saying that the folks at good samaritan do their best to do uh to be client friendly customer friendly as best as they can within the confines of the rules and regs. I believe that's true. That was certainly true when I was there and I know it's true now. So um, yeah. Yeah, it's just not a user-friendly system. Um, yeah. I was not- thank you, Mark. I appreciate that. Good, good Sam has been in just, I will say they have been at the core of pretty much every successful uh, placement we've had. Their team is, exceptionally strong right now. I it may have always been, I'm not, I don't have a, a long history with them, but they're at a really good place right now. And they are, um, what I appreciate about them is sort of their fearlessness and advocacy. I think they're used to being in that position more than my team is because my team is so new and they, uh, they don't shy away. Drew, the director over there will get on the phone with, uh, legislatures at the state level and, uh, kind of give input to them about what we're experiencing. And so, um, yeah, they do a good job in a tight place. And, and I, I, I appreciate their, their consistency and going out of their way to go above and beyond. Um, like I said, even simply reaching out to the clients when their 90 days renewal is up. Um, I don't expect most Haras do that. And they do. Let's talk a little bit shifting gears here about what's causing homelessness. So we have, like we've talked about already, some of these structural factors, we don't have the affordable housing we need. Um, If you follow housing in any way in Holland, you know that we're in a bad, bad way right now. 
We have underemployment and unemployment. And then we have cost of living, which keeps going up and wages which don't change or don't change fast enough. We also have lots of people with fixed income. This can be disability, this can be retirement, this can be an annuity. Uh, A lot of people where their income is not going up with the cost of living. We have system failures. We have access to support systems. You know, we've got some new programs that are making uh, headway on this, but we still have a lack of people getting to what they need. We lack funding in mental health and substance abuse and generally healthcare. Um, You know, these things are, I would say they have a disparate impact and a disproportionate impact on our neighbors experiencing homelessness, but they are not unique to that subgroup, right? This is something that we see in our whole population. And I, I don't know a ton about the UCC, but if I had to take a shot in the dark, I feel like I'm talking to people who already know and uh, believe in this sort of um, reality and and needing to change it. Um, Individual and relational factors are going to be also a huge part of this. And I think this gets overlooked far too often. Um, For any of you who study trauma or traumatic events in people's lives, we're learning more and more every day in psychology and um, neurology about the way that trauma affects people's brains. And it is incredible how difficult it is if you don't ever have a chance to recover from that. It takes long-term toll on your brain, on your coping strategies, and on the way you interact with people in situations. We have personal crises that contribute to that. We have mental health and addiction challenges. I mean, it's just, there's a lot. So people sometimes look for what's the root cause of homelessness. And the, and the short answer is there, there really isn't one single thing you can pin this on. So one thing I like to do here is just quickly run through these five myths that I have heard and I think people in our field hear pretty regularly about homelessness. So myth one, people experiencing homelessness are just lazy. In reality, uh, a lot of our clients right now wish that they could work, but they have a hard time finding a job. That could be because they have gaps in employment history, they have a disability, they don't have a state ID, they have a hard time finding a computer to get online to access applications. They have no way to get to and from work. They have mental health concerns. They have physical or mental health concerns that lead them to need medicine they can't get access to. They might be uh, unable to to read. They don't know how to use a computer. And more and more applications are going uh, fully online right now. So even your lower paying jobs, they'll say, oh, you want a job? Go to the kiosk or go online and fill out an application. And even that's a big barrier. So we we are seeing... A lot of people looking for work, we're seeing people start jobs but not be able to maintain them because of transportation. Um, And it's just blame hard to hold a job when you're living in the woods. It just is. Um, Let's go to number two here. Um, If, you know, maybe I, I, I just can't quite wrap my head around where this one got so stuck in people's minds. Uh, but I have heard this one so often. If people experiencing homelessness have cell phones, they aren't truly in need. Um, our response to that is that you can't really exist right now without a phone. And people experiencing homelessness could have a phone for a huge number of different reasons. They could have a prepaid phone that they just put money on when they can. They could have a government phone. Uh, back during President Obama's tenure, he created a program called Lifeline Phones that provide a free cell phone, a free smartphone with a limited number of minutes, text messages, and data uh, to people who have a qualifying, um, who, who are qualified. And we help a lot of our clients access those phones. So they have a smartphone. They didn't pay anything for it. Uh, it's not great, but it's what they need to, to keep moving. Um, they may have had a phone before they lost their housing. They just kept that with them. The reason that we put focus on getting people phones is because they need that to contact uh, when good Sam tries to call them and say, hey, you need to come in and resubmit. When the doctor calls and says, hey, you you have an appointment or to call the doctor. We had a client the other day who went to the um, emergency room because he had uh, his hand had swollen up to almost double its normal size due to a cut he had gotten in the night and uh, it was super infected. And he didn't have a way to contact a doctor to say, what do I do about this? And so he just waited until it was really, really, really bad and then went to the ER. Um, If you're talking about wanting to get a job, that's another reason. So 
cell phones are not a good gauge of whether or not someone is homeless. Uh, number three, if people uh, experiencing homelessness would get a job, they could find a place to live. And we've already talked a little bit about this. They have lots of barriers. Um, but let's talk a little bit about what does it cost? Why, um, why is this not a helpful narrative in more than one way? I'm going to go back to my video of all of you. Raise your hand if you like numbers, if you like data and numbers. Okay, there are four of you. All right, that helps me gauge how long to spend on this. Um, when everyone raises their hand, I geek out. Um, so we'll do this. We'll say um, earning a minimum wage of $9.25 an hour, an individual uh, using the federal government's definitions of what you should be spending on your housing, uh, somebody would be able to afford uh, $481 a month. Um, does anyone know of anywhere in Holland that has 481 a month? And if you do, I want to know about it because I don't know anything even close to that. So that's if you're working at minimum wage, right? We can safely say that's just completely ridiculous. Now, when this presentation was written and using data for all of Ottawa County, not just Holland, uh, the average uh, two-bedroom apartment in Ottawa was $800. That is before utilities and additional expenses. Um, there's just no way you're getting there with minimum wage. Now, I will also say that there needs to be a whole line of asterisks behind that. Um, because for a two bedroom in Ottawa right now, you're probably not going to find something below 950. Um, you might occasionally find a 900 or a private landlord who doesn't know, isn't keeping up with, or is just being nice about what they're charging that will do 850 to 900. But generally speaking, you're between 950 and 1050 for a month on a two bedroom. So let's take a look at the numbers here for, for those of us who like these. Let's focus on the left-hand column a moment. For a single adult, if you were to have only $590 in housing costs, which I think we can safely say is ridiculous because there's nothing in that area in this area for that cost. But if you only had to pay that for housing and you could budget only sub $200 a year or a month rather, excuse me, for food, fairly low transportation costs, you're making um, car payments, repairs, because you can't afford a nice car, your credit might not be great. So you're paying astronomical interest, you're repairing it, you're putting gas into it, you're paying for insurance, your healthcare for only 184, every single other expense, every single other expense that's not one of those things above 150 a month, you would need to be making $9.92 an hour to meet that. And hear me when I say, Housing, you need to tack on at least $250. And miscellaneous, I don't know anyone that, aside from those previous five categories, is literally only spending $150 a month. That's shoestring. Um, if you knock down that and look at a, at a separate example, let's say you have two adults, one infant, one preschooler. So now your housing is, again, comically low at $730 a month. Your child care is almost twelve hundred. Uh, can anybody in this group say is that reasonable for Ottawa County right now? Twelve hundred for two kids for a month. Anybody have kids in daycare? No. Okay. Well, I have I have heard as I've done this training that that's a pretty fair ballpark twelve to thirteen hundred, maybe fourteen depending on age. Um, so I'm going to go with that um, and continue there. Um, Food, $600. I've never had to feed a family of four. That seems a little low, but probably okay. Um, you guys can read down what these expenses come out to, but the, what we want to focus on here down at the bottom is your in, or your hourly wage to sustain that would need to be $28.20 an hour. Um, it, and, and what we're trying to say here, basically, the whole point of this is to say, this is not people being lazy this is the jobs that are available are not paying what people would need just to survive. This is not sort of a budget that you can survive on going and thrive on. This is if you shoestring everything. I mean, this is if your tire goes flat on the way to work, you're stuck because you don't have extra money to fix that tire. You know, this is, this is nothing goes wrong budgeting. Um, and at least my life, that's not usually the case.
So that's one of the reasons why we're saying that this isn't really sufficient. It doesn't, the math doesn't work out. Coming back to our five myths, we'll wrap up with number four and five here. Number four, it would cost even more money to house people uh, experiencing homelessness. Uh, in fact, taxpayers are paying far more money for people to remain homeless than it would cost to place them in permanent housing. So if you add up expenses from hospital visits, medical care, which is a huge one, hospital and medical, jail expenses, judicial services, emergency shelters, the cost of homelessness adds up really quickly. The annual public cost per person experiencing homelessness can be up to $45,000 a year. The annual public cost per person for permanent supportive housing is less than half of that at around $20,000 a year. Okay, so here again, we're basically saying sometimes there people will say, well, the money's not there. Well, the money is already there. It's already being spent. It's just what do you want to spend it on? Um, myth five here oops, says, um, before I get to myth five, I'm sorry. The reason that Ka adopts what's called the housing first approach to ending homelessness is exactly what we just talked about. If the belief is you have to basically prove that you're ready to be housed. You have to prove that you're effectively, it's, it's a sense of, are you worthy of investing the resources in for a long time? That was the model. It was the housing next idea was the model housing next said, if you can get yourself sober, if you can get yourself a job, you can get yourself on your medications. If you can fill in the blank, then we can look at getting you housed. Housing first turns that around and says, how is anybody going to realistically make progress on these substantial barriers in their life when they're living in a car, when they're living in a tent in the woods? It just doesn't make sense. First, we house people in safe, stable housing. We surround them with support. And then when they're ready, they start to address their barriers. And the interesting thing is the evidence bears this out. This is the better model every time. And if you're interested in that, you can go to, um, someone just taught me about this, Google Scholar. Has anyone ever used Google Scholar before? It was new to me. Um, but if you, if you actually go to Google and type in Google Scholar, you can look up article after article after article about the efficacy of housing first. And it's really substantial. Um, when it doesn't work, it's usually because the model wasn't followed correctly. They just gave someone housing and didn't support them. you know, Or they said, well, we kind of do a modified version of housing next. We'll, we'll work with you. And if you do good enough, we'll put you in transitional housing. And then from there, you can try to prove you're ready for living on your own. But when the model is followed, housing first is effective. Um, so that's what we work with. That's what Good Samaritan uh, focuses on. And we, we believe really strongly that that's the path forward. Myth number five, every person experiencing homelessness is an alcoholic or uses drugs um, this one's a tough one. You know, I, are any of you part of that awful Facebook group, uh, Holland informed? I'm the only one bad enough to be. No, I, that I, makes sense. I'm with you there. Okay. Okay. There's a few good, good. Yeah. You guys are admitting it now. Um, man, it is just dreadful. It is the things that people say in this group for, um, a few weeks there about once every week or two times a week, there would be a post in this, it's maybe 8,000 people supposedly from around Holland. And you just kind of post whatever you want. And someone would say, I saw this homeless guy. Um, he said he was homeless begging for money. And then he went to a gas station and bought beer. And oh my gosh, the stories that pour in after that of how all homeless people are just a bunch of drug addict, alcoholic, you know, low life, um, terrible, terrible, terrible stuff. The, the, the actual data behind it is, is sort of shocking in the other direction, in my opinion. The overwhelming majority of adults experiencing homelessness in Ottawa County, 80% do not struggle with chronic substance use problems. Um, and for those that do, we have a philosophy of harm reduction that um, we try to help clients understand those behaviors, including substance use, and limit um, that limit their lives and help them to thrive. Uh, we know that drug and alcohol abuse can just as easily be the result of homelessness rather than the cause. Um, people who don't have anything else to turn to can turn to lonely places like drug and alcohol use or others 
other addictive behaviors or unhealthy patterns or relational patterns. We know that. Um, but again, I think so often we hear this as sort of an excuse to not, um, not continue on and provide services. So homelessness in context, again, looking at some of this data, um, you'll notice some of the years that we have are a little bit older. Um, the Lakeshore Housing Alliance, which uh, I sit on the executive board, Mark is on there as well. Um, but that's with Lynn Raymond over at the Lakeshore Housing Alliance. We get data sometimes a little bit behind as HUD runs their reports. So Ottawa County in 2018, the point in time count, it's a one-time 24-hour event where we try to get as much of a sense of how many people are living outdoors or in homelessness as possible. Um, 225 people were experiencing, I sh that should not say unsheltered, excuse me, just homelessness. Um, the annual homeless report from 2019 said over the course of the year, we had over 1,200, almost 1,240 people experiencing homelessness in Ottawa County. Now, like I said, the Ka Street Outreach Team is really only focused on those unsheltered people. So those numbers are usually substantially lower than the entirety of homelessness because a lot of these people who experience homelessness at some point do utilize the mission or they do utilize other services. Um, so our count for people engaged in our service over the last year was around 130. Um, but even that number is sort of frightening considering the parameters we're talking about. So I wanted to show this map, um, and I, I apologize, in order to make it big enough to see, I had to cut off the UP, no ill feelings there. Can I ask a question um, about the 130? Yes, thank you. Is, was that a point in time or was that over the whole year last year? Good question, over the year. Thank you. Yep. Um, so region one is the upper peninsula and we're gonna get to all the data on the next page. I just wanted to give you an idea of um, the regions that this data is based on. So I might even flip back and forth between these two. But the uh, Campaign to End Homelessness or the coalition, uh, Michigan Coalition Against Homelessness is um, studying data from these different regions. So if you have a minute to look, we're over in region four. Um, you will see that we account for about 25% of the people experiencing homelessness in our state. And we're actually the second highest out of the entire state. Uh, only Detroit's region is higher than ours and they're at 26%. So we're neck and neck with them as far as um, the percentage of people housed in our region experiencing homelessness. So to look at the entire data set here, I know it's a little bit small. I don't know if you're able to see that. Um, tried to blow it up as big as I could. What this is gonna do across the top, you have um, your 10, re 10 regions and then on the left-hand side, you'll see the three different years, 2017, 18, and 19. And what it does is it shows you the raw data um, for each region by the year. And then on the bottom, it tells you the percentage change from 2017 to 2019. So the good news is a lot of them are down. So let's look at region one for the most drastic example. In 2017, they had just over 3,000. In 2019, they had just over 2,000. They're down 33%. If you look at the regions that went up, they're region three, region four, region eight, and region nine. Of those that went up, eight and three up 8%, but region four was up 20%. And if you'll remember, region four is us here in West Michigan. So, the overall numbers are a little bit better if you add up all the numbers and do the math out on that. But unfortunately in region four, we, we've actually seen a pretty substantial increase in numbers. I'm gonna take a minute there and just, I see a few faces that I'm interpreting as confused. <laughs> I have a question about the percentage. Yes. Uh, clarification. So for region four, the accounts for 25%, Forgive me for uh, that not feeling clear. Is that 25% of the persons experiencing homelessness in Michigan? 25% of them are in West Michigan or that's 25% of what? Um, 
I am quite certain I can't get my screen cleared with the zoom, but I'm quite certain that on this screen, some quick rough math would tell me that is of the entire state's homeless population. Okay. And so huge percentage is yes. right here. Yes. West Michigan is responsible for 25 out of all of the people experiencing homelessness in Michigan. 25% of them are in region four. 20. Yeah, 26% are in Region 10, which is Detroit area. Is that reflective, though, because those are the two largest population groups? So the, those numbers are going to be higher because there's simply more people? That is my understanding, is that that is at least going to skew the data. Yeah. Although I'm, I understand they've also tried to shape these regions to come up for some of that. Now there's no way the UP is going to make up for Detroit, even though Detroit's in a really small region. Right. Um, but certainly there's some play in that. Sure. I think what I, when I look at this data, what is most alarming to me is not so much which region has the most people so much as the growth and decline by region. So when I look at this and I say, wow, some of these are, a lot of ours are going down and not just by 1%, 14, 12, 16, 33. Um, but to see ours be on, not only on the wrong side of that, but the worst, we've actually had the highest growth out of any region. Uh, is Go back to the Michigan map just for a minute. Back to this. Thank you. You know, even if it's skewed a little bit by population centers, um, I I've lived most of my life not in West Michigan, just the last couple uh, years here. And the rest of the state thinks of this as the Gold Coast. So I think even if you correct it a little bit for population center, it's still shocking because the images, there's so much wealth up and down this gold, quote unquote Gold Coast. Uh, and there is a lot of wealth, but there's a tremendous amount of poverty too. Is that fair to say? Mm. I think that's a really fascinating perspective. I'm also not from uh, Michigan. I'm an Iowan. And so West Michigan is my only experience of Michigan. And when I've traveled uh, outside of here, uh, wow, I, uh, I experience Michigan very differently uh, as someone who's only really ever spent time in Ottawa County when I travel elsewhere. So I think there's a lot of truth in that. So we are doing fantastic on time here. We're going to finish up just in time. Um, I've got just three more slides left, and then we can take some questions and further discussion. Unfortunately, we are also pretty noteworthy in our racial disparity. In Ottawa County, just to put some perspective on this, one in every 233 people experienced homelessness in 2019. So that's just another thing I like to remind people of. This is not sort of a crazy, could never happen to me. It's only those people out there. Um, it is totally worth noting uh, and acknowledging that I, I, as an individual, I, Daniel Unicus, am extremely unlikely to ever become homeless. And that has nothing to do with my financial, trust me, that's the last thing keeping me from becoming homeless. I'm not doing like great financially, but my network, my family, my friends, knowing people who know people, knowing people who have resources, who own their homes, who have a second home, who, I mean, it's, it's incredible the amount of security that I could experience, even if I lost my job, even if it all went belly up. Um, that is not necessarily the case for a lot of people. We hear a lot about people living paycheck to paycheck. And a lot of our clients, you know, we lost a client. We had a client pass away uh, just last year who a few years back was running. He, he was the owner of a fairly successful business uh, in Southern Michigan. And things just took a wrong turn. He didn't have that support network, wound up homeless and, you know, succumbed to some of the problems he developed while homeless. Um, so I just like to, I guess, put out there for people to chew on that this is not a um, as unthinkable as a problem as we might be inclined to, to imagine. Unfortunately, like I said, in Ottawa County, we were pretty noteworthy in that Hispanic people were two and a quarter times more likely to experience homelessness than non-Hispanic people. 
And black people were 20 times, 22, excuse me, 22 times more likely to experience homelessness than white people. Um, these are rough numbers. These are not what anybody wants. Um, I think it's worth stating that the Lakeshore Housing Alliance, which is sort of our coalition of agencies working uh, together on homelessness services, is very aware of this data. And I'm leading us through um, conversations about what we're finding in the data and, and trying to get us towards what is causing this, what might be causing this, what are some of the things we can do better, um, and also identifying where some of these larger cultural issues are at play. Um, I see a lot of people on the Zoom call that look a lot like me. Um, and I experience West Michigan to be a fairly friendly, um, hospitable environment. But my clients who don't look like me have other stories. And I imagine you've heard some of those too. So those are things that we are working on. I do want to end with saying that we, it's important to celebrate the success. And some of this comes from the state level. Um, in the state of Michigan, we've seen declines in homelessness for youth age 18, 24, declines for veterans and declines for families. The legislative victories at the state level, uh, we now have free access to birth certificates and state IDs for people experiencing homelessness. My team spends a significant amount of time and energy invested in helping people experiencing homelessness procure legal documents. If you wanna apply for a job, you need an ID. You wanna apply for housing, you need an ID, birth certificate, maybe social security card. And the maze of trying to get one of those things when you've lost all three is unfathomably difficult. Um, so all of these things help. Uh, partnerships for returning citizens. Uh, returning citizens is the new language um, for somebody just released from incarceration. Uh, returning citizens working with a housing choice voucher, which you've also heard me refer to as Section 8, had a 93% success rate in, in what they were trying, which was astronomically higher than returning citizens who weren't provided those supports. So there are, on the state level, there are great things happening. On a local level, there are good things happening. My team has been uh, involved in housing um, almost 35 clients. I think we're at 33 or 34 right now since last March. That doesn't solve everything. Some of them will be housed and then lose that housing. Some of them we still haven't figured out a path for. But it is an it is a noticeable difference when you can see somebody who's been on your client load for years and you finally put them into a housing and you check up with them week after week after month after month and they're finding a place that is safe and stable that they can call their own. Um, the unique last note I'll say on that is while we have had really great successes and that number is exciting to share, Community Action House does not have housing. So anytime that I share that we have housed people, there's always a big fat asterisk behind that that is with the cooperation of other agencies in town. Good Samaritan, on Rescue Mission, Resilience, uh, faith communities who have stepped in and, and worked with us, uh, landlords. I mean, it really is a collaborative effort. So what can I do is often a question people ask themselves, uh, what, what's next? Um, what do I do? These numbers, this data, these stories, man, they were hard. They were good. They were challenging. They were, what do I do? I don't always know. I don't always know what the best way to respond is, especially when I don't know the person and what their interest and capacity are. But I do know that there are opportunities to volunteer, even if it's not Community Action House. There are opportunities to get plugged in and to work with people who are in this situation. Um, you can advocate. These legislative victories don't happen without people calling in, without writing in. We need people on the local level to be involved in this. We need people at city hall meetings and, and city council meetings. You know, we have a lot of advocates in those spaces, but they need to hear it from the community, that the community cares, that the community sees this as an issue that needs to be dealt with. Um, that it's it's something that we care about and that we are demanding or, or requesting or whatever you want to say, you know, changes to be made. There is, of course, always the opportunity to support, support financially. Um, for some faith communities, that's, um, you know, through an agency like Community Action House, um, you know, that's, that's your community's decision. But uh, on an individual or a corporate level, that's certainly something you can do. 
And maybe a, another one that is um, a little bit more accessible to everyone, um, but takes almost the most bravery in some ways is changing the narrative. How do we as a community say, um, I'm not okay with this person being looked over. I'm not okay with their humanity being forgotten. I'm not okay with saying we should do something sometime maybe. I'm not okay with saying, well, surely they need help, but not in my backyard. The not in my backyard phrase, I am so burned out on hearing that. And I hear it regularly when we start talking about affordable housing. Well, of course we need it, but what? how my property value is going to sink. Um, again, Facebook is just sort of a, a pit of yuck around these discussions. So changing the narrative, these are humans, they have dignity, they have worth. Their circumstances do not define them. This doesn't mean that you have to go slam on the brakes and drive your car up on the median and jump out and talk to somebody holding a sign the next time you see them. It doesn't mean you need to give them, you know, your credit card and say, go get what you need. But how can we find ways that are um, subversive in changing this narrative about who, quote unquote, these people are and why they're in the situation they're in? Um, so I think I'm going to leave us with that and, and say, let's, um, let's open it up for some questions, some feedback, some thoughts. Um, yeah. Sounds great. Thank you, Daniel. Lots of great information there. Uh, and friends, if you have a question, feel free to unmute. Uh, you can also type it into the chat and I can ask it to Daniel. Are any of the local organizations like like yourself and um, Good Sam, able to purchase homes that can then be rented out? Um, or does that go against your funding sources? That is a brilliant question. I think the, the appetite for that is increasing. I know that there are more uh organizations and communities talking about getting into housing somehow. Um, I think what's probably a little bit difficult, if I could speak just from a very like narrow point of view uh, within my team would be to say, uh, we sort of specialize in outreach, but a little bit less in like being a landlord and being sort of a um, house manager. Um, and so I think there's there's room for that and there's interest in that building. Um, I, I think that's probably all that I can really say right now. It's a great question. I'll just sort of close here by saying once again, thank you all to uh, for coming out to listen to this. I, I'm, I'm so happy and, and sort of impressed in a way when I heard a church group wanted to do a Zoom training on a weeknight at seven o'clock. I thought it'd maybe just be me and one or two other people thrilled to uh to have had the chance to meet with you and talk with you and for those of you i saw a few of you right at the end there when he said one last question a few of you kind of leaned in to to offer yours up so please do reach out to me um i will uh if i can i can just drop my email in the i don't know how to put it in the chat i'll figure out how to put it in the chat here and um and then you can reach out to me personally or um if your group decides that that they want to talk further about this in um, in some way, I'm happy to to kind of consider uh, what that means moving forward if, if there's more discussion to be had with this group. Well, thank you again, uh, Daniel, on behalf of the Justice Action Team and the entire community at Holland UCC. Really appreciate uh, not only your, present, your presentation tonight, but all the hard work we know you're doing in our community. Uh, really, really grateful. So thank you. Definitely. Yes. Thanks, Daniel. Thank excellent. Excellent. Wonderful. Thank you. All right, everyone, have a safe night. Stay warm and 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 feel a little uncomfortable at how easy it is to stay warm inside and, and wrestle <laughs> with that while you fall asleep. Have a great Thank night, everyone. You. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. streaming on Facebook, 
You can also watch these messages on the Holland UCC YouTube channel. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org.